Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue looking at the book of Ephesians. I want to highlight and thank the worship team for uh, the new song or new to us song that they played. Uh, if you recognize the words, that means you were paying attention during the sermon, so good job. Uh, but as you can tell, and as you can tell from today, and we're going to sing it at the end, that it is based on this section of Scripture. But as we look at this second part in verses 7 to 10, again, remember verses 3 through 14 are one sentence. And as we look at this next part in verses 7 to 10, this morning we're going to talk about redemption. Now, redemption is a good theological, good Bible word. And so when we look at these concepts, because they are somewhat familiar to us, we need to take a step back and really think about what does it mean. And to begin our thinking this morning, I want to take you to a physical example of redemption that is found in the book of Leviticus. One of the uses of the Old Testament law for us today is that sometimes it gives us a concrete picture of a spiritual reality. And so in Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 55, we are going to talk about redemption in the, in the context of what was available, the laws available to someone who went into a debt they could not pay. I'm not going to read it, but you can go back and read later, beginning in verse 35. So in verses 35 to 46 of Leviticus 25, it gives the laws and the stipulations for a poor person who goes into debt and sells themselves into slavery so as to pay off their debts. And in the next part of that chapter, it tells how someone who has done this can buy back or redeem themselves, can buy back their freedom. I'm going to read to you excerpts from this chapter. So this is Leviticus 25. I'm going to begin in verse 47 and hop a little bit around. If a stranger or a sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. This is verse 50. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee. That was every seven years. And the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he may pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. Verse 55, for it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So let me summarize this briefly for you. You have someone in debt. To pay that debt, they enter into debt slavery or debt servitude. They are brought out of that. They are set free when the redemption price is paid. 
And throughout all of this, God connects this redemption to the redemption he gave to Israel in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And so Paul takes this idea and applies it to our salvation. And this is one of the ways that we speak about what Jesus provides for us. One way to talk about the work of Jesus is that he redeemed us. We had a debt of sin and guilt we could not pay. And through his death and resurrection, all those who trust in him are redeemed and set free. And so as we continue to look at this passage in Scripture, we look at the spiritual blessings from God. Today we're going to look at the spiritual blessing of redemption through Christ. That when Christ redeems us, we are set free from sin and are forgiven, and we are then united with and under Christ in his kingdom. Now before we jump into verses 7 to 10 this morning, I want to remind us of verse 3. Again, as I said last week, verses 3 to 14 is one run-on sentence. And so I want to review sort of the caption of this section in verse 3. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the larger context of this passage is worship for God in all that he has done for us. And because these blessings are through Christ and in the heavenly places, they are securely ours. And as I mentioned last week, as we divide up this passage, we're going to talk about these foundational blessings out of which every other blessings, all other blessings flow. And so as we think of this blessing, again, as I've said before, Today's foundational blessing is redemption. So let's look at verses 7 to 8. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In Jesus, we have redemption. Again, redemption is paying the price to release sinners. The picture is of being in debt because of our sin, and through Christ we are set free. Paul uses this metaphor similarly in Romans 6 when he talks about us being slaves slaves to our sin and then being set free to become slaves to Christ. But when we look at how Paul words it here, I think this is important. In him we have redemption. If you have repented of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you are redeemed. You have redemption. It is yours. This blessing is for all who have placed their faith in Jesus But again, part of being redeemed is that a price was paid. And what was that price? So we see in verse 7 there, in him we have redemption through his blood. As we saw before, again, I 
told you last week to notice every time it says in Christ or in him, that it is through Jesus and through Jesus alone that we are redeemed. But more specifically in this part of the passage is because it is through his blood. The payment of our redemption was the blood or death of Jesus. It is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus that sinners are set free and redeemed. Now, when we think about who Jesus is, we see people admit to Jesus being a teacher and a role model. But at the center of who Jesus is, is that he is the one who has paid for our redemption with his sacrificial death. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 1. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. One of the reasons that I quote from Peter here is that he includes modifying the blood of Jesus as precious. He highlights for us the great cost of our salvation. It's an interesting connection to our lives that's brought out in Paul's letter to the Corinthians too. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. One application of understanding the great payment that Jesus made for our redemption is that it must change how we live. The fact that we were bought not with measly money, but with the blood of Jesus is a part of Peter's argument and Paul's argument that we are to live holy lives. As Paul said, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You did not set yourself free. Your freedom was purchased by Jesus, purchased by his blood. Now live a holy life that brings glory to God. Now let me point out here a connection that I highlighted last week between the two parts of Ephesians. Remember I said that the first half is more about truth and doctrine, whereas the second half is more about living that truth out. If I do not understand that I was bought by the precious blood of Jesus, I will not live a holy life that glorifies God. If I think that I have earned my freedom, I will simply live the way that I want. You will not obey God's commands if you don't understand that you were redeemed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, in the next part of the verse, Paul highlights a specific part of this redemption, and that is the forgiveness of our trespasses. Look again at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. A couple things to note here. First of all, while trespass is often a synonym for sin, 
It can add the flavor of breaking God's law in rebellion. So it is a declaration that before Christ, we were rebels breaking God's law. Think about how we use the word trespass about someone coming on to property where they don't belong, stepping over boundaries in an illegal way. The other thing to note here is that the word is plural. Oftentimes when Paul talks about sin in the singular, he is referring to it as a concept. But when he refers to it in the plural, it can highlight the individual actions, the individual trespasses that we commit. When you repent of your sins and place your trust in Christ and his death and resurrection, you are redeemed and forgiven of all your sins. It is only through Jesus and his redemption that we can be forgiven. Again, this is another good connection about how the first half of Ephesians and the second half of Ephesians work together. If you do not understand how much you have been forgiven, that you have been forgiven by God of all your trespasses, if you don't understand that your forgiveness was bought by the blood of Jesus, then how will you obey the command in chapter 4 to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you? If you don't understand how God in Christ forgave you, then you won't forgive one another. If you first don't know what it means for God to forgive you in Christ, then how will you know what it means in your life to forgive others? Now, how do we get this blood-bought forgiveness? Look at the last phrase in verse 7 and the first phrase of verse 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished Upon us. Forgiveness and redemption come to us through Jesus and his death on the cross according to the riches of his grace. We do not earn our salvation, we do not earn our redemption. God doesn't look at us and say, you know what, I'm going to redeem that guy because he's really great. It cannot be more clear. That our redemption in Christ is a work of God's generous grace. Notice how time and time again we keep coming back to grace. And not to spoil the rest of the book, but grace is going to come up again and again and again. But Paul doesn't even just say it's because of grace. Look how he says it. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. The idea here is of God is so generous to us with his grace. God is never stingy with his grace. What does this do for us? First of all, it needs to humble us because we are not saved by our own power and greatness. We are all recipients of grace. But this also calls us to show grace to one another. If I am a recipient of the lavish riches of God's grace, how can I not show that same grace 
to others. If you are not a graceful person, let me suggest to you that you do not understand how God lavished his grace upon you. This is one of the most important things, I think, when we are trying to live out our lives in relationship, is that we understand that we are saved by grace and grace alone. And when we understand what grace really means, then we will show that to one another. Now, there is a hard phrase at the end of verse 8, and there's debate as to whether which we should put that with the beginning of verse 9 or the end of verse 8. Uh, let me say, whichever way you go doesn't change anything a total bit. Uh, I believe it's better to be put with grace here at the end of verse 8, but it really doesn't change anything if you put it together with verse 9. But what does it mean that he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight? One author for us is helpful here is understanding these as God's gifts of grace, that he gives wisdom and insight. He says this, God's lavish grace bestowed on us not only redemption, but along with this all the necessary wisdom and insight by which we should live wisely. Or put another way, God's grace not only saves us, but by God's grace we are given everything we need to live out that salvation in our daily lives. Now in the next two verses in our passage today, Paul moves from what redemption is to what is the goal of that Redemption. So let's look at verses 9 and 10 to understand that. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The first thing I want to see is to clear up what Paul means when he says mystery. Now, when you see the word mystery in the Bible, it's a common word in your Bible. Don't think your favorite murder mystery or Scooby-Doo episode. When the Bible refers to God making known to us the mystery, it is referring to what was previously unknown, but now has been made known. So in the Old Testament, we know that God is going to send a Savior but it is only when Christ is revealed in the New Testament that we see how God was going to save us. That's what we mean when we talk about mystery. And there is a sense in which we need to see that God's salvation is no longer a mystery. That's the more important point here. We see in verse 9 there, making known to us the mystery of his will. As one author comments on this, God intended that we should understand his saving purposes. The Bible is clear. There is no more mystery after Christ has come. Salvation is available to all people who confess their sins and place their personal trust in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. That is the mystery revealed. But a couple things we need to say here. Number one, that this is according to his purpose. 
In language that we've seen before throughout this first section of Ephesians, the revelation of God's plan is of his will and according to his purpose. Don't miss the clarity in that repetition. That as we saw last week, that salvation in Christ and the revelation of that salvation is under the sovereign power of God. It is his will and his purpose to save sinners. This plan of salvation was also, we're told in verse 9, set forth in Christ. Again and again, we come back to this point, that it is through Christ and only Christ that we are saved. Again, as I've said multiple times now, verses 3 to 14 is one sentence, and I want you to go back as we go on in this study and just see as you read through it all in one sitting, How many times it says in Christ or in him, constantly reminding us that it is through Christ and Christ alone that we are saved. We also see that this plan, verse 10, was done for the fullness of time. All things happen in God's timing. Salvation through Christ is done according to the timing and plan of God. We see this in Galatians 4.4 when speaking of the first coming of Christ. Galatians 4.4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Every unfolding step of the plan of God happens according to his timing and his plan. And all of this leads up to verse 11, which speaks of the, or verse 10, which speaks to the goal of this plan. Look at that with me. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we see the purpose of this redemption, the goal of this redemption is to unite all things in Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to unite all things in Christ? Again, we're helped by the commentator who writes this. The text suggests that God's summing up of these entities in Christ is his act of bringing all things together in and under Christ. This author points out that think of it like a main point or a thesis statement of a paper, that Christ both summarizes and is the caption under which all things find their place. I appreciate that phrase, together in Christ, so we're united in our unity with Christ, but that unity is also under Christ. You can think of it this way, how the citizens of a country are unified with and under a king. All things in this world, through the victory and redemption of Jesus, are unified under the rule of Jesus. And we see at the end there, things in heaven and things on earth. This emphasizes what he says earlier of uniting all things, that the two parts of the whole emphasize the totality, that there is nothing that does not come under the rule of Jesus. 
There's also an aspect to this which we will come back to later in the book of Ephesians, which speaks to our unity. That in our being united with Christ, we are united to one another. We are united with Jesus. We are united together as the people of Jesus, but we are also united under his kingship. And so in his salvation, in his redemption, we have a new purpose to life. To live in relationship with Jesus, but also to live under his rule and authority. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. Number one, when we are redeemed, we are forgiven. Before Christ, you had a debt you could not pay. Your sin and guilt was a debt that deserved the judgment of God. But in Christ, we are forgiven of all our trespasses and sins. As we think of our identity in Christ, again, I said that last week, the book of Ephesians is a lot about who am I in Christ. As we think of our identity in Christ, we must always remember that we are forgiven sinners, not because of anything we have done, but because of the redeeming work of Jesus. Secondly, when we are redeemed, we are lavished with grace. We are not redeemed because we deserve it. The redemption of Jesus is an act of his generous grace. Our redemption is according to the riches of his grace. And when we think of our identity in Christ, we must always remember that we are all recipients of God's grace. One of the most spiritually dangerous things you can do is forget the grace that you've been shown by God. Finally, number three, when we are redeemed, we are united with and under Jesus. All of history is moving towards God's plan of redemption to unite all things in and under Jesus. Our common salvation unites us. And we live out our common salvation under the rule of King Jesus. In the act of redemption, Jesus creates a people who are united to him and each other under his rule. In his redemption, we see the victory of King Jesus. And when we think of our identity in Christ, we must always remember that we live as citizens under the rule of King Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. That you sent your son to die so as to redeem us by his precious blood. That through your generous grace, you redeemed us from a debt we could not pay to being set free to new life in Christ. And that you set all of us free to be in relationship with you and under the rule of King Jesus, that we would live out that obedience, holiness, and unity in every step of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.